0: And so the church is now growing and spreading among both the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the church has enjoyed a time of peace away from persecution since Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, was converted on the Damascus Road. And so the church has been at peace. They've been growing. Things have been great. And then we finished Acts 11 last week with news that a great famine would soon fall upon the known world. And Christians from Antioch, they sent money down to Judea and Jerusalem to prepare for that famine and support their brothers there in Jerusalem. But the famine wasn't the only thing on the horizon. Look with me in Acts chapter 12, in verses 1 through 11, we read how King Herod persecutes the church. It says in verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Now, it can get a little confusing because in the Bible, there's only about 37 different Herods. Okay? Herod the Great, he was the one that ruled at the time of Jesus' birth. And he's at the top of the family tree here. Herod Antipas, one of his sons, ruled at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And here in Acts 12, Herod Antipas's nephew... This is Herod Agrippa we're talking about, the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa ruled over the region of Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. And his motives for persecuting the church seemed to be purely political. So look at verse 2. It says, Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was not the first Christian martyr, but he was the first martyr among the twelve apostles. James and his brother, John, had been fishermen that Jesus had called to follow him and to serve him. And they did. They answered the call. They laid down their nets. And they both, James and John, followed Jesus for three years as disciples. And they were there when Jesus was crucified. And they were there at the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell upon them. And James was there witnessing Sharing the gospel, spreading God's love to this early church over the next few years until quite suddenly Herod Agrippa has James arrested and beheaded. But Herod wasn't done. Look at verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So this feast of unleavened bread was a week-long feast that started with Passover. So Peter was locked up as a maximum security prisoner, and he's got four squads. Each squad has four soldiers in it, four squads of soldiers. Way too much security for this guy. But we do remember that at the beginning of Acts, Several of the disciples had been arrested in the temple, and when they went to bring him to court, they couldn't find him because God had let him out already. So they knew something might be up. So they they put all these soldiers around Peter to make sure he didn't escape. And so, verse 5 Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. As I studied this passage this week, the idea of constant prayer really stood out to me. This week-long Jewish feast celebrated how God had rescued Israel from Egypt, from slavery. And so they celebrated God's rescuing from Egypt and bringing them to the Promised Land. But for these Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem, they were not only looking back to God's deliverance from Egypt, but they were looking forward to praying, God, would you rescue Peter? This whole week-long celebration had become a week-long of constant prayer of the church. It reminds me of how Paul described a man named Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You see, the church was laboring fervently for prayer, in prayer for Peter. They gathered for no other reason than to pray. And can I be honest with you, as I read this passage and thought about prayer and the church meeting for prayer, I was convicted because I'm really good at those five second prayers throughout the day, busy life, something comes up, an issue arises, temptation arises, five second prayer. That's easy for me. But to to clear off my calendar just for a few minutes to be uninterrupted and pray, I've really been slacking. And so as I studied, the Lord really put that on my heart. Jared, you need to make time to pray, only to pray, not pray while you do other things. And it's been so refreshing to take just a few minutes and focus on prayer. If you want to take notes, you can look in your bulletin. Your first fill in the blank says prayer should be all the time and for a time. Meaning we should pray throughout the day while we're busy but we should also set aside time to focus solely on prayer. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we lock ourselves away and pray for 24-7. It means that while we're working or we're cooking or we're driving or whatever, We're constantly in that communion with the Lord, in prayer and communication with Him. But beyond that constant communication, God invites you and He invites me to say, all right, I'm going to lock myself away. I'm going to find a quiet time, even if it's just for five minutes, and I'm going to pray without distraction. And for me, I'm so easily distracted, I need to put on some worship music so that I can pray and focus. So back to our text, Peter's in prison during this week-long feast, awaiting his execution while the church is in constant prayer. And verse 6, it says, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. It amazes me that on the eve of his execution, changed to two different prisoners, different soldiers in prison, we find Peter sleeping. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this too much because this is the same guy that in the Garden of Gethsemane was also sleeping when he was supposed to be praying, right? Maybe he was just a little behind on sleep. Maybe he was just exhausted. But maybe Peter was at peace because he knew whether he lived or he died, he was going to be with Christ for all eternity. Maybe that's where his heart was and that's why he was able to sleep on the eve of his execution. But Peter was asleep, and verse 7, now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know That what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was sleeping, was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And only now as the angel departs does Peter realize that he wasn't dreaming this, this wasn't a vision, but this really just happened. And he finds himself clothed and around the corner from the prison a free man. And so verse 11, And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish People. You see, there were many Jews here in Jerusalem who still had not believed in Jesus, rejected him, and they were like Saul was when he was still a Pharisee. They were zealous for God and they wanted to eradicate Christianity, all of these heretical people, and get rid of them. And so they were excited to see Peter arrested, awaiting execution. They liked James being beheaded and they were glad that Herod was doing something they wanted him to do. And so Peter gives God all the glory for rescuing him, not just from the hand of Herod, but from the hand of the people as well. And now in verses 12 through 19, we read about the church's surprise. So verse 12, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. This is the Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark in the Bible. And it was at his mom's house that they were all gathered to pray. Could I just say, praise the Lord for moms that pray. When I was an angry teenager, my mom would sneak into my room and pray over me. Because she's creepy like that. (laughs) But I'm thankful. I'm thankful to have a mom that prayed over me. So, thanks mom. And so, verse 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, oh, it's, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Don't you love this? I love that the church had enough faith to be in constant prayer for Peter, but not enough faith to believe that God answered their prayer. I can relate to that. I can fit right in. You see, they were shocked to see Peter, shocked to see their prayers were answered. And this reminds us that the power of prayer is based on who I pray to, not how well I pray. It's who we pray to not how well we pray, not that we say the right words, not that we gird up our faith and then release it in the power of prayer. No, it's who we pray to. Peter wasn't saved because the church said the right words, and we know he wasn't saved because the church had great faith because they didn't. And so, let's take comfort in their example, resting in the fact that once again, God meets us where we're at. God never stands in one place and says, if only you could get to this place, then I could help you. No, God comes to where we're at and He meets us there. And that's what He's doing here with the church. Now back to our text, the church is astonished that Peter is at the door. But, verse 17, motioning to them with his hands to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Knowing Peter, he didn't want them to wake up all the guards and get put back in jail. So he says, don't, don't wake everybody. And so he tells them, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and he went to another place. Now the James mentioned here is not the apostle because he was martyred at the beginning of the chapter. This James is the half-brother of Jesus who became a leader in the church in Jerusalem and who wrote the book of James in the Bible. So verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. And I just love how that's worded. When the guards woke up, they didn't have a little problem about where Peter was. And, and as soldiers, if their prisoner escapes, then the prisoner's sentence was put upon them. It was a big deal. And so it was a big deal for them. And so, verse 19, But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. After this, Peter is only mentioned once more in the book of Acts, and just in passing. This final story of Peter tells how James was killed while Peter was spared. And it begs the question, Why? Why, Lord? Why would you let one be killed and let the other be miraculously rescued and protected? The short answer is we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why. The Bible does tell us that God is sovereign, that He's in control. It wasn't that God was sleeping when James was arrested and afterwards He said, Oh, sorry, no. There was no accident. There's no oops in God's dictionary. And so we know that it was time for James to come home, but God still had work to do in Peter's heart and through Peter's life. And before moving on, I want us to take some time to see what we can learn from this passage. You see, at the time when James had already been killed and Peter was arrested in prison, the church feared for Peter's life. They had no promise of Peter's rescue. They didn't know what was going to happen. But they did what they could, and they prayed. You see, when problems arise, my job is to pray. God's job is to do what's best. My job is to pray. God's job is to do what is best. Sometimes God will answer our prayers, and we may be shocked, like the church was with Peter, when God says, yes, I'll do that. And we're like, no way! Other times, God may answer our prayers even better than we imagined. And still, other times, God may answer our prayers with no. And we must trust that God has more wisdom and better knowledge and a better plan than we do. Most of you are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. David was the king of Israel, he was the little shepherd boy that had the sling and a stone and he had the faith that God can defeat Goliath and so I'm going to rest in his strength. And yet as David got older and he was blessed, he began to get comfortable. He got lazy and he let his guard down and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. A few weeks later, Bathsheba sends him a message and says, I'm pregnant. My husband's away at battle. And so David, he tries to cover it up. But it doesn't work. So then David sends a message to the commander and he has him put the husband out on the front lines and everybody else pull back. And he has the husband murdered in battle. And then after Bathsheba grieves, then David marries her. And David looks like, what a gentleman, taking this poor widow and giving her a home. Yet God was not pleased. And so God sent a prophet to David to convict him of the sin that he's been hiding and making excuses for. And finally, David confesses and he repents and he seeks forgiveness and David seeks the Lord. However, God says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. Die. The baby from that adulterous relationship got sick. And for the next week, David spent that time praying and fasting, asking God to spare the child. But after a week, the child died. And so David got up. He cleaned himself and he ended his fast. And David's servants were perplexed. They didn't understand. David, why did you fast and pray? While the child was alive, but now that the child is dead, now you're not. It doesn't make sense. David replies in 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 22. And David said, while the child was alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. You see, David knew God could have healed the child. God could have spared the child. But when God gave his answer of, no, this isn't my plan, David humbly said, okay, it's not what I wanted, but just as Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And so David humbly accepted God's answer of no, and he looked towards heaven. He said, the child's not going to come to me, but I'm going to go to him, and I'll see him in eternity. And so David gives us our next fill in the blank. When tragedy hits, focus on what you know rather than on what you don't. Focus on what you know rather than on what you don't. When tragedy happens in our lives, it's easy and tempting to cry out to God and ask, why? Because tragedy hurts, because we don't understand. But the truth is, even if God answered us and explained why he allowed something to happen, it wouldn't heal the pain. David's a bad example in his adultery, in his murder and his deceit. But he's a good example in his eventual confession, repentance, and his focus as he looks toward heaven and says, I'll see that child again. I'll meet them there. Here's a very simple thing that we know and need to remember. This life is short. Eternity is forever. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Suffering never feels light and momentary. But compared to eternity, it can be described no better way. I'm borrowing this example from Francis Chan. If we look at this rope here, we look at the white part. This represents your life on this earth. The rest of the rope represents eternity. And it keeps going. It doesn't end. But it keeps going and going and going. In our suffering, from our temporary perspective, we say, Lord, I don't understand. This right here really hurts. Why did you let James be beheaded? It doesn't make sense. That hurts right here. And God says, I know, but don't look at this. Look at this. Look at the rest. Focus on the eternal perspective. Look at the big picture. He even tells us that in heaven... There is no pain. In heaven, there is no sorrow. In heaven, there is no death. He says, look to the eternal perspective. But he doesn't argue with us and say it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. The world says, life is short. You need to enjoy it. Do whatever you can to enjoy this time because it's short. But Christianity says, eternity is long. Live for God and enjoy Him. That's what He wants for us. Because eternity is so long, hell's a terrible place to spend it. And that is why Jesus came to the earth. That is why Jesus left His throne in heaven to come down and live the perfect life that you and I could not. And to suffer and die on the cross to pay for our sins so that anyone who would believe in Him would not go to hell, but they would spend that eternity in heaven with Him. And that's the next thing that is very simple and yet very true that we must remember. God loves you. Do you really believe that? Because I'll confess that in the moments of suffering and grief, That's what Satan so quickly attacks, doesn't he? Remember Satan's temptation of Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, second part of verse 1, it says, And he, Satan, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice how he phrases that question. He made the good commandment of God sound like it's a restriction. Did God really say you can't eat anything around here? Boy, he's really holding out on you. Then Satan goes on in verses 4 and 5. It says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Once again, Satan implies that God is not good or loving. Satan makes it sound like God is holding out on good things, for Adam and Eve. And when we are suffering, we're tempted by that same lie. We're tempted to think, God, if you let this happen to me, then you must not love me. And we get so focused on our circumstances that we forget the cross. The cross which is the proof that He does love us. But the cross was never meant to take away the pain and suffering of this life, but to take away the pain and suffering of eternal life. God says, look at the big picture and trust me when things don't make sense. The third thing we need to remember when tragedy hits is stay humble and keep worshiping. Stay humble. You see, we're tempted to think that we deserve blessings or that we're entitled to blessings or tempted to think that our sufferings are unfair. Lord, that guy's a jerk and his life is great. What gives? Lord, I'm trying to live for you and everything just doesn't seem to be working out. Job lost almost everything. And yet we read in Job chapter 1 verse 20, Then Job arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We might say, Lord, that's not the way that I would have done it. Or, I think my way would be better, God. Or, Lord, I really wish you wouldn't have done that. Wish you wouldn't have allowed that. But if we let those types of thoughts dwell in our heart, we're no longer remaining humble and worshipful Those are the thoughts that kick God off of the throne in our heart and say, Lord, I'm not so sure about your way. I think I want to go back to my way because my way seems better in my eyes. And if we do that, we're feeding our pride rather than submitting ourselves to God's wisdom and His plan. We're buying Satan's lies instead of trusting God's goodness like Job. So God saw fit to rescue Peter, but not James. But either way, we say, praise the Lord, because he has given us eternal life. That's what we look to. Now back to our text in verses 20 through 24. We read about the death of Herod. Verse 20 says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Once again, we notice how Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, gives us a ton of details and names that just show that this is history. It's not fairy tale. But he gives all these extra details to show us this is a true story. And so these people here, they don't really like Herod, but they depend on him for food. So it's time to kiss up. Time to make men so that they don't starve to death. And so verse 21, it says, On a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. There's a Jewish non Christian historian named Josephus. And he wrote History of the Jews during this time. And he records this story. And he adds some extra details saying that on that day, Herod wore a silver garment so that in the morning sun, the sun just reflected off of his clothes and he shined. And it just gave the people an easy way to just puff him up to make Herod feel good about himself. Josephus adds that the moment Herod was struck, he had a significant pain in his belly. And they carried him to his palace, where he suffered for five days before he died. I know some of you were asking, how long does it take for worms to eat you? That's the answer, five days. And so Josephus tells us the end of Herod. Luke tells us the end of Herod, and in the midst of this, there are three things that I find encouraging about this passage. First of all, I'm encouraged to see secular history affirm details given in the Bible, because it reminds us that God's word can be trusted. Second, I'm encouraged that even in the midst of persecution, God's kingdom advances Herod Agrippa persecuted the church. He beheaded James, tried to murder Peter. And yet in the end, Herod Agrippa died while the word of God grew and multiplied. It reminds me that God wins in the end because he already won on the cross. Third, I'm encouraged because of God's mercy towards Herod Agrippa. I'm convinced that it was God's mercy for it to take five days. Five days of suffering for Herod, but five days for Herod to be humbled, to be brought to a place where maybe, just maybe, he might finally repent and turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness before it was too late. I'm encouraged that God is so merciful that even on our deathbed, if we genuinely cry out to Him, and ask for forgiveness. He accepts us. Because our salvation is not based on our works, it's based on His work on the cross. All we have to do is receive that gift. Let me finish with one last idea. In Matthew 5, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. And then He tells us why. In Matthew 5, verse 45, He says, we need to love our enemies that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, we're commanded to love our enemies, to give them what they may or may not deserve, because that's who God is. God gives the good sunny days and the good rainy days to those farmers that need it, regardless of whether the farmers have a relationship with God or not. God gives good things to people. God, In God's grace, I think all of us have experienced some good things in the world. Whether it's a close friend or a loving family or a good meal or a decent job. We've experienced some good things and yet, Suffering is the loss of a good thing. Perhaps the loss of a job, or the loss of health, or the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a relationship. And the reason we suffer is because we've tasted that good thing that is now taken from us. Now consider this, hell is the loss of all good things for all eternity. For those who have not yet believed in Jesus, for non-believers, suffering is a small sample of hell and invites us to repent and get right with God before it is too late. Suffering in this life reminds us of what hell is going to be like. And God wants to use that in a lost world to draw them to repentance, to draw them to eternal life. Now for those who already believe in Jesus, for believers, suffering is a litmus test for faith, revealing our faith to be genuine or not, and invites us to go deeper with God than we ever have before. Because when the things that we trust on are shaken, we need to hold on. And if we're trusting in Jesus, then we hold on to Him like we've never have before. You see, your last fill in the blank, for all people, suffering can lead us to bitterness, despair, or self-satisfaction, or to a reconsideration of what lasts. Suffering can cause us to write everybody and everything off, God included, and say, I'm just going to... Serve myself. I'm going to do whatever I can to wash away the pain. Or, suffering can cause us to stop and evaluate what's going to last, what really matters. Job, of all people, gives us the answer, what is it that lasts? Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You know, I struggled with this message this week because I don't feel worthy to be the messenger because I haven't really suffered, not really. And yet I realized that it's not my message, this is God's message. And we have a God who has suffered. A God who came down and took our place on the cross. A God who knows what it's like to experience loss and pain and betrayal and hurt. And He's the one that looks to each of us today. Each of us, whether we're suffering now or life is good now. And God says, I'm not trying to make excuses for your pain. I'm not trying to write it off. But I'm trying to highlight the end. Where for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus, we will stand with him on that day. We will stand in his righteousness, we will stand in his kingdom. And we're going to dwell with Jesus in heaven for all eternity, forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have promised eternal life. Not just eternal life, but life in heaven, where there is no more pain, no death, no sorrow, no tears. Lord, eternity in heaven where we get to dwell with You, to see You face to face, to talk with You face to face, to live with You. Lord, we confess that we struggle to keep that focus. We struggle to keep that perspective, especially when th- times are tough. So God, we ask, would You please give us the faith we need to trust your plan, to trust your way, especially when it hurts. Lord, if there's anybody here today or listening online that has not yet surrendered their life to you, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would speak to them and invite them to lay it all down at your feet and to receive you as their Lord and Savior. God, we ask that you would equip us to be the men and women you've called us to be, to stand strong in your word and your promises, even when the waves and the wind around us. God, would you glorify your name? Would you expand your kingdom? God, would you continue to reveal your grace in the midst of suffering? And God, would you continue to save the lost and bring them into your arms and add them to eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Well, we couldn't have picked a better song to end on. Don't you love when God does that? If we can pray for you, we'd love to. We've got some men up front that would love to pray for you. There's a lady in the book in the library that can pray for you. Otherwise, have a great rest of your day. Know that God loves you. He cares for you. He's with you. And may we as a church look towards eternity. Look towards His promise being fulfilled in each of our lives. God bless. Have a great day.